This is another episode of Building the Future with Dan Rundy. I'm really pleased to have Ambassador Dahinden. He's the Swiss Ambassador of the United States. Ambassador, I'm so pleased you're here with me today. We just had a public event talking, an exit interview with you. You've been here for five years. You've had a very interesting career in diplomacy representing Switzerland. Thanks for being on my podcast show. Thanks. It's a pleasure to be with you. Ambassador, just let's first start with, tell us a little bit about your career. How did you get started in diplomacy? And talk a little bit about how did you end up becoming Swiss ambassador to the United States? What, what happened between starting in diplomacy and how did you end up here? I was excited about the job of diplomat because you can move around, you can discover the world, yeah. and you can keep your job in the same time. This is not uh, in every position right. the case. True. And so I was very fortunate that I could do very different things from development, cooperation, uh, to, to trade, to security policy. When you start, you are not starting by saying, I want to be the ambassador of Switzerland to the United no. States. This is what happened. When you start as an intern in the Swiss system, that's not your first thought. Exactly. Okay, but, but you had some really interesting jobs over your career. You're 64, you're turning 65, so that's your, so you've been in diplomacy for 35 years or 40 exactly, years? Exactly, almost, yeah. I mean, it's a great run. So you've had some really interesting jobs. You were, you worked on security issues for a long time. Yeah. You were involved with trade issues at the GATT, yeah. which became the WTO. Exactly. But right before this job, you were the head of Swiss foreign aid in what the agency's called SDC, the yeah. Swiss Development no. Agency. It's in Bern, which is the capital. It's your Washington, right? Yes. You switched roles. Ambassador Sager had your, you know, had this job, and you were switched by your foreign ministry. They asked you guys to switch jobs. Exactly. So, let's first start with Swiss neutrality. So you, so Switzerland's famous for being neutral. What is mm. Swiss neutrality? What does that mean? This is a commitment not participating in war unless you were attacked uh, yourself. It has a long history, goes back in a time in Europe when major power crossed uh, Switzerland and we were dragged all the time into war. But this does not mean that we are turning our back on the world. We take a commitment. Switzerland has a very strong humanitarian tradition. This is something that fits very well to the neutrality. We've had a country where the International Red Cross has been launched, and uh, Geneva is still a hub for humanitarian organizations and humanitarian action. Let's talk about that, because there's a... How did Geneva become a hub for, for let's call it the international system? It's linked to neutrality. It was a, was a place where people could meet. And the International Red Cross was, let's say, the, not the first, but the most important organization in the 19th century. And then an American president played an important role after First World War. It was the idea of President Wilson to have the League of Nations in neutral Switzerland and in not in one country that participated in the First World War. You have a number of major UN agencies or UN-linked agencies in Switzerland. You have the UN High Commissioner for Refugees, UNHCR. Yeah. You have the International Labor Organization. Yes. We've hosted Guy Ryder here many times. Okay. He's a friend. The World Health Organization, World Health Organization is, is there. Human Rights Council. The Human Rights Council is in, in Switzerland. But there's also, and I have a friend who's up for the U.S. ambassador to represent the U.N. agencies in, 
in Geneva, yeah, Andrew yeah. Bremberg, who's yeah, a, a yeah, longtime yeah, friend of yeah, mine. Yeah. Who, and then I was with the U.S. WTO ambassador from the USTR representing yeah, WTO. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was with him in Brussels on Friday, and he's quite good. It's quite a hub. How about the World Economic Forum? And, and it's not really the ICRC, but it's quite important. What is the World Economic Forum, and how does Switzerland think about the World Economic Forum? This is Forum? a private initiative of Professor Schwab. It's not a formal international organization, but it's an outstanding organization to bring people together, to let them exchange views and in many respects ideas that would afterwards find their way either to governments or to other international organizations are pre-shaped there. Uh, the I, I completely agree with that. Creates an environment and brings people together that very often otherwise would not meet. Let me come back to this issue of neutrality. Switzerland is a mountainous country, so landlocked. How does Switzerland defend itself? We have an own army and we have a compulsory military service for men. We have not a standing army, but a preparation to mobilize quite uh, fast if need be. If you had to mobilize all the people, how many people could you mobilize on? I would say in the tune of 200,000. So that's a lot. That's a lot of people. So if someone wanted to invade a very mountainous Switzerland, having a very armed, two hundred, well-trained 200,000 soldiers, that's a pretty, it would probably be a deterrent. Is that fair? Yes, that's fair. And did you serve in the Swiss army? I did serve in the Swiss army, yes. And how long did you serve for? If I count everything together, it would be about three years. I became eventually an officer, major. Really? This was my last degree. And then when I entered to the diplomatic service, I could not continue with military service. Oh, okay. Yeah. So, Ambassador, I was hiking in Switzerland more than 30 years ago, and I was in, in a home, and I was shocked to see what I called a machine gun, and you corrected to say, Dan, no, that's not a machine gun. It's a submachine gun, but it was a very large automatic weapon. No. And why would I find a large automatic weapon in a home in Switzerland? It's important to have the weapons for those who are doing service in order to have a quick mobilization. So if something happens, people would go to the meeting points already equipped and armed, not with big weapons, not with, uh, with, with, with cannons or, or hand grenades or, or things like this, but with their personal Small equipment. Small arms. And so you can save. If people would come in their civilian attire and would have to escape themselves, it would easily take a day or two until a unit is together. Okay. So thank you for that. So, so one of the other things, though, when, I, when you talk about neutrality, you said earlier you're not turning your back on the world. There have been times where – so Switzerland's a member of the United Nations, for example. Now, when did Switzerland join the United Nations? Rather late, about uh, 20 years ago. Really? And so when Switzerland joined the United Nations, so, for example, Switzerland has had various peacekeeping, has participated in peacekeeping operations. Yes. And will it only respond, it will only do so if there's a UN Security Council mandate? That's correct, yeah. So, and you've also sent civilians to Afghanistan. Also, Switzerland is in many places where we have conflict with uh, really? civilian uh, programs. And one of those is, uh, is, is, of course, Afghanistan, where we uh, have worked for, for a long time. And do you have, do you have soldiers overseas? 
We have soldiers overseas, as of, uh, for instance, in Kosovo with the oh. contingents and then also with specialized uh, specialists in other countries. But I have also to admit that we are not among the biggest contributors to peacekeeping. You also are members of the World Bank and IMF. When did you join the World Bank and IMF? This was in 1992. And why did Switzerland join the World Bank and IMF? Well, I'm not knowledgeable why we didn't uh, join earlier, but this was in the time of after the Cold War. I, I think this I'll, was an yeah. interesting time. I think. Well, I think the reason I'm going to take a guess that the victors in World War II set up the World Bank and IMF, and I bet the Soviet Union and the f- countries behind the Iron Curtain were not members of the World Bank and INF until probably after the end of the Cold War, and so probably it was. It was seen as if you joined, you were sort of taking sides, if I could put it that way. And when the Cold War ended, maybe it was okay for Switzerland to join. Definitely. Something like that. I'm guessing. But the reason I ask is one of the things we were talking about in the public meeting was the way the World Bank and IMF work is there's about 25 votes. Mm -hmm. And so countries have shares and they kind of add up to a vote. A seat. And so you have a constituency voting. So you have an interesting constituency and it influences how you – there was sort of some reasons why they put you together. But also it also influences how you think about your development cooperation. Who are some of the other members of your constituency? Uh, The biggest member is Poland, EU member country. And then Serbia in the Balkans, Azerbaijan in the – the Caucasus. The Caucasus and then the Central Asian countries. So very different countries with a different background. And I think to have a group and to have this group dynamics with so many different aspects. As a result of you being maybe by dint of fate or by dint of how they gave out the votes, Switzerland has developed cooperation relationships with some of these countries than your constituency. Exactly. Is that right? Yeah, exactly. Particularly with the Central Asian countries. Yeah, I'm quite interested in the five Central Asian countries in addition to Afghanistan, you know, Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan, Tajikistan, Uzbekistan, and Turkmenistan. And there's some potential change happening in that region, and it's an interesting – there's a lot of contrast. It's an interesting region that's sometimes overlooked here in Washington. Also, I have traveled in that region uh, several times. It's it's an outstanding mountainous area, Swiss – perhaps feel at ease <laughs> when they're going uh, particularly to, to Tajikistan. And yeah, I think uh, th- th- their role is underestimated. Uh, I mean, they're neighbors of Afghanistan and uh, have been for centuries part of this great power game. Uh, In places yeah. like Kazakhstan, it's quite wealthy. Kazakhstan's yeah, become yeah. quite... It's, Kazakhstan has many challenges, but Kazakhstan has made quite a lot of progress since 1991. It had $800 per capita in 1991. It's now about $12,000 per capita. There's a lot of resources. There's a lot of resources, a lot of capable people. It's a very impressive country. There's there's somewhat of a – Kyrgyzstan is a a functioning democracy. Uzbekistan feels like it's going that way. So there's a lot of change happening in that region. Before becoming Swiss ambassador to the U.S., you are head of the Swiss aid agency, SDC. How many countries does SDC operate in? As I would say, it's in the tune of 40, uh, 40 countries. Okay, yeah, but yeah, you probably yeah. have a smaller universe of countries that you focus on, right? Of, of course, there's a strong concentration uh, to, to Western Africa. This is yep. also linked to the, to the language, Francophone uh, countries. 
we have also a strong cooperation with Eastern European countries. Ukraine. This is technically, yeah, yeah exactly. And, 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 and also we have a program with uh, new members of the European uh, Union. You see, we are participating in the European market, and so we are paying contributions to the new members to work against the disequilibrium within the European Union. This is technically not development cooperation, but it's taken care of by the by SDC, by the Swiss Agency for Development and Cooperation. You have a number of areas, when I think about Switzerland, that Switzerland is famous for. I wanted to ask you about workforce development. You, for many, for centuries, have had a system of, of uh, it's not internships, it's apprenticeships, and sort of a, a company-driven workforce development curriculum. Talk a little bit about that. Talk about how that's come across your radar screen here in the United States, because I mm -hmm. think mm -hmm. both Republican and Democratic administrations and state governments have asked you for help with this. But also, in your past life, at SDC, I bet many countries called Switzerland and said we really could perhaps learn from Switzerland about this. Talk about this. Yeah, let me first uh, uh, a point about what the specifics of the Swiss yes, apprenticeships. Please. I mean, it's it's a system where you can almost speak of from a public-private partnership. The public sector provides contributes for the classroom training and makes also sure that somebody who did an apprenticeship gets a diploma he can use and uh, people know what he knows. And then the companies that make available the jobs and take care of the training in the companies. The advantage of the system is that it's driven by the need of the labor market. Companies will make sure that the skill set is the skill sets you actually need. There are also in Switzerland very much involved in the curriculum development. I think that's really important, Ambassador, because I think too many institutions, both in the United States and elsewhere, they're, it's sort of supply-driven by whatever the professor wants exactly. to teach, and it's oftentimes out of date or not, not relevant. And this is wrong. And so it's wrong, and, yeah. And, and, and so you, by having a significant part of the training in the company, the company knows what is cutting-edge technology, what you would need in terms of uh, what the market's human demanding skills, but and, yeah. also material uh, machines. They uh, would then almost always use uh, the most modern equipment, and this makes sure that you are not trained on uh, on outdated concepts. Being trained on horse and buggy technology when you've got exactly. you know you've got driverless cars coming or this yeah, sort of yeah, thing. Yeah. I, I think what it was interesting in the outside and the public event that we had earlier, you talked about the the importance of working with customers, yeah, working yeah. with the public, yeah. meeting. I think the other thing which you didn't say, but I would suggest is having to meet professional expectations about deadlines, showing up on time, exactly. shaking hands, looking people in the eye, exactly. sending thank you notes, just basic functional soft skills. Exactly. Some of which are acquired over time. Sometimes your parents wow. give that to you, sometimes the school, but really there's some sort of professional expectations that are sometimes trained and given to you, but some of it's just picked up on the job. That's true. And 
This is uh, particularly important not only for the individual skill development, but also to prepare people uh, to start their own job. These are or start their own company. Their, their own company, yes. These are the kinds of uh, things uh, you need. An example I make very often is to tell people about Renaissance painting. What was so outstanding of painters like Michelangelo? They were entrepreneurs. They were not only uh, gifted painters trained in an academy, they learned how to deal, let's say, with those who gave them the contracts. And this was the reason why most of those people could do the most outstanding artworks. And painters like Michelangelo or Leonardo were all people who came out of an apprenticeship and not from an academy. Really? That's amazing. I didn't realize that. So workforce development, you've gotten lots of phone calls in this current job as Swiss ambassador to the United States asking about the Swiss system. Who's called you about the Swiss system? We had a lot of exchanges. It was with both of uh, both administrations. The Obama administration and the Trump Obama, administration. Obama, Trump administration, uh, Department of Labor, Education and Commerce. But then we had a lot of requests from governors, governor's uh, offices. Governor uh, Hickenlooper of Colorado. Uh, for, for instance, or Governor Inslee or from Washington State mm-hmm. and, and, and others. We have also. Do we, does the, in here, Ambassador, I'm sorry, yeah. is do we have a stigma? Do we have a bias, too Harvey, a bias in this country towards university education? Is that a problem here? Also, in have my we maybe in my view, it's the case. I it's difficult for me to speak about no, this. I, I I learned also that let's say school counselors told me that there was a history in the old time in the U.S. to direct colored people towards apprenticeships and white people towards uh, oh. college. So it's so a racial there, thing. There, there are all these kind of There's things. There's some racial we, we do not have. Uh, we do not have in Switzerland. Oh, no. uh, so I, I discovered this kind of I underlying concerns oh. and so on. And But this is wrong. This is wrong. And if you look at the apprenticeship, somebody earns something while learning. So he has a job. He earns perhaps $800. But he doesn't enter afterwards the profession, uh, his professional life with a student debt. And this is, a, I think, a significant advantage. Did you start in a system? I didn't like start, did? uh, start with but an the apprenticeship. Pre- but the president of UBS did, for example. Exactly. And he so earns UBS much the, more than I. Right. The do. largest, one of the largest banks in the world started yeah, as an yeah, apprentice. Exactly. So how about in developing countries? I bet you when you were the head of SDC, you got many, many asks from yeah, those 40 yeah, or so yeah. countries saying, how do I bring this workforce, vocational technical training that is famous all over the world, yeah. how do I bring what you're doing in Switzerland, how do I bring it to my country? Yeah. So the first and most important thing is you cannot copy-paste it because you will face a completely environment. You will probably not find the kind of companies you need to do that practical part of the Because it's company-driven in some ways. Yes, uh, the, the companies play an important role. And so... Uh, what we very often did, we, we tried to take elements, we tried to look how can we make sure that an education is driven by the needs of the labor market. And then we came sometimes up with, uh, with, uh, with different models than the ones w- you would see in Switzerland. The other sector that is famous for Swiss development cooperation, there's many others, is the issue of local government. When I think about 
Switzerland, it's it's a system of small towns and cantons, which I guess are equivalent to counties in the United States. Yeah, or to states. Or to states. Yeah. And so you brought that to developing countries. Talk a little bit about what the Swiss experience is and what you've brought to developing countries. Yeah. The Swiss Development Corporation started in the 1950s and 1960s. Oh. Uh, before there were missionaries, and but this was something completely, yeah, was completely. Private. This was uh, private, and so we were to some extent reluctant to just support centralized governments. We thought this is, is, is not our vision. It's not in, our, you're not in your tradition. Uh, uh, not in our tradition. This is not where we have our experience. And we thought always it was the best to build from the bottom up. And so you will find a lot of Swiss uh, development cooperation not happening in the capitals, but happening more in the countryside and building up communities, working with communities. And I think this is our strength and this is where we have our expertise. So I want to talk about our, your relationship with the United States. So you have yeah. uh, been ambassador here for the last five years. U.S., United States, and Switzerland have a long relationship. Is that yeah. true? Yeah, a long relationship goes back in the time when the two countries were the only republics on the globe. When, so this was in like the in early the 19th, 19th century? century. Uh, yeah, in the mid-19th century. So one of your predecessors fought in the American Civil War? This is a funny story. A person, Emil Frey, he was uh, emigrated to the United States, businessman, and then in the, during the American Civil War, he uh, joined uh, the, union the, union, side. Yeah. the Union side. He did fight in, uh, in, in Gettysburg was captured, spent one year in Confederate prison, went to back to Switzerland. Me. And afterwards, uh, in the 1880s, he became the first uh, Swiss ambassador before we had that only consulates. That is wild. And later, he became member of the government and even president of the Swiss Confederation. That is wild. That's a wild story. Yeah. I had no idea. It's a typical 19th century story. It will not happen anymore. <laughs> no, you couldn't replicate that today, but you could make a movie out of that. Yeah. Someone yeah. ought to make a movie. Yeah. There are several things that characterize our relationship with Switzerland. One is Switzerland's been quite helpful to the United States as it pertains to Iran and to Cuba. Talk a little bit about that. So when you first came here in 2014, you represented the U.S. and you represented Cuba you kind of were the go-between between the United States and Cuba. Is that true? That's true. When countries do not have diplomatic relations, they can ask a third country to take care of their interests. And this is what happened in the early 1960s in Cuba and in 1980 uh, with, with Iran. And from that time onward, Switzerland has represented U.S. interest in those countries. The case of Cuba developed very far. This was a, a major issue during the Cuban Missile Crisis and oh, later. Wow. But since the late 1970s, it was rather something formal. So there was a Swiss flag on the, uh, on the Cuban interest section in Washington or an American uh, interest section in Havana. The, the case is very different with Iran. So there, uh, all is handled by our people and Swiss Tehran. people in Tehran. There are uh, no Americans in, in that unit. It's mainly a channel of uh, communication to pass messages back and, and forth. 
And uh, the second, I would say, very important element of work is taking care of Americans, now double nationals, that got in trouble in, in Iran. And there have been cases, some very well-known cases, where Switzerland has been involved in helping free Americans. Is that true? That That is true. This was uh, in 2016 uh, the case with a whole uh, with a whole group of prisoners that have been released and my colleague in in Tehran at that time he did a very important job to 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 make this possible well we're very grateful to Switzerland thank you very much for doing that thank you very much I, I want to talk about our trade we have a very deep and impressive trade and investment relationship between our two countries. Could you talk about that? Because I was surprised. Uh, yeah. Talk a little bit about that. I don't think that's well known. I, I must say I was surprised myself when I arrived here and I, I was not aware of it. Switzerland is number seven investor, in the, the number United, seven investor. investor in, the United, in the United States, number nine trade partner. For the United States. In the United States. So you're the United a top States. 10 investor and a top seven investor and a top nine yeah, trade partner. Exactly, That's wild. Exactly. I had no exactly. idea. No, people don't have an idea. Don't forget that Switzerland is a very globalized economy. We are earning more than 50% of our GDP through exchange with other countries. Really? For the US, for instance, it's 11%. So our share that is or of wealth that is generated through international exchanges is quite big. So one of the things, when you think about what are the shared interests of the US and Switzerland, what are some of them? And then I also want you to talk a little bit about the potential for a US-Switzerland trade agreement. I think both countries have similar uh, concepts of, uh, of of international trade, and given all this intense exchange we have, the investments and uh, all what this entails, uh, it's difficult to explain why we do not have a free trade agreement. If you look at countries, similar countries. In, in terms of importance, there are free trade agreements. I'm personally convinced this could even boost on both sides uh, the investments and, uh, and, and the jobs. exchange and, and, and jobs, of course. I did forget this, uh, roughly 750,000 jobs are created in the U.S. by those investments and the average salary is in the tune of uh, slightly more than $100,000. So it's not jobs in the law salary segment. 750,000 jobs, yeah, $100,000 yeah, yeah. per capita. Yeah, yeah. Oh my gosh. So if the US trade representative was here or the Secretary of Commerce was here, make the case for a trade agreement between Switzerland and the United States. As I would tell yeah. him first, I would underline the importance of the already existing trade. The significant interest, uh, for instance, uh, of Swiss people to do business in the United States and vice versa. But I would also tell him, particularly now where he's in complicated negotiations with, uh, with China, it will not be that difficult to come to a conclusion with Switzerland. It's not, um, let's say, a road full of obstacles to come to an, an end. Great. Ambassador, I so appreciate you coming. Thanks for your service here. Um, we're grateful you've come and visited us here at CSIS today. Uh, thanks for making the time. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure.